0: Welcome everyone to another episode of Justinian Talks. On today's episode, we have uh, the wonderful Kevin Morris from <laughs> uh, from three different places: from Georgia originally, then from Shtip and now currently in the UK uh, as part of his work as a Marshall Scholar. And he was in and in, in North Macedonia for as a Fulbright, as a Fulbright Scholar, and we're happy to have him. On the podcast because he has a wonderful fascination for the Balkans, and because and we and we just wanted to hear uh, his um, his perspective from like living here for a year or so. So, Kevin, how are you doing?
1: Mm. Yep, uh, I can hear you guys. Uh, sorry, there's going to have to be just a lot of editing in this, um, but uh, yes. Uh, um i missed the last bit of that but i trust nico told me what he was gonna say beforehand so unless he had any sneaky additions knowing my wi-fi is a little tricky then i'm just gonna roll with it <laughs> who knows what he said um uh, but uh yeah i i,
0: I, I ask uh, you how just... are you <laughs>
1: okay <laughs> yeah yeah some dobro uh i um you know I, it's been a wild time here in the uk uh with the, you know very interesting pandemic management policies but um I have uh, taken a year off of grad school to focus on um, trying to get some research done. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the archives are closed right now, and that makes it really difficult when you're trying to study turn-of-the-century Western involvement in Balkan affairs, seeing as all those documents are locked up nice and safe. So um, yeah, we're taking a year to do that. I'm currently on a farm in Wales right now um, and it's raining. So physically I'm a little bit cold and clammy, but other than that, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I'm kind of low key thriving. It's been nice to be on the countryside with the world shut down. So um, it reminds me, honestly, a lot of sheep, a lot of rolling hills, a lot of like kind of farmers and stuff, it's a very similar aesthetic. So I feel like I've come back home.
0: You, you're, missing, you're missing out on the brutalism though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, where am I without my architecture? Um, oh yeah. You know. uh,
0: I mean, co- I mean, considering now we, so we as a podcast, like did a live stream for the U.S. elections, and yeah. considering that you're from Georgia, can you tell us I how am. you're feeling now with uh, the fact that Georgia is basically becoming the new swing state of the U.S.?
1: You know, I feel like it's just a different scale of like SDSM making some like radical enroad into steep, you know what I mean? Like it's very much that kind of like, wow, wacky, this is kind of crazy feeling. Um, but there's a lot of excitement, you know, um, Georgia, as I'm sure you guys have read, was a solidly Republican state um, for as long as I can remember, you know, honestly, ever since the Democratic and Republican Party finalized their ideological switcheroo. Um, And like the last of the old Southern Democrats kind of migrated into the Republican party, Georgia has been red. I mean, the last president to take Georgia um, with the election was Clinton. So it's been the result of a lot of people on the ground doing that grassroots work of getting people registered to vote, particularly really disenfranchised communities such as African-Americans, our growing Latino population, um, Atlanta itself has a huge refugee community. Um, so, a lot of people from all over the world, um, also a large Caribbean community, a large East Asian community. And, um, you know, it just goes to show when you work collectively to push back against voter suppression, you really can move forward a policy agenda that people really need. Um, so, it's really, really exciting. Major kudos to Stacey Abrams and the rest of the people at the new Georgia project um, who've been so critical in making that work happen. So, uh, but yeah, no, I feel really elated. Um, I feel really excited. Um, And I think if anything, I feel very energized to hit the ground running for these Senate races coming up in January, the Senate runoff races, both of Georgia's Senate seats are up for grabs and uh, they will determine whether or not the Democrats have congressional power to move forward an agenda um, and help President-elect Biden's uh, policy priorities reach realization. So, um, yeah, lots happening. It's pretty exciting. So, um, you know, it's been it's been wild to watch. Nico, you and I were like communicating on Facebook and like kind of collectively freaking out as the votes oh, yeah. trickled in. You know, so oh,
0: yeah, um, I, I think I think it was during like the same time or the day after the live stream. So mm, mm. it was it was pretty intense.
1: Yeah, I think it just it's and maybe young people in Macedonia. Um, at least some of them can identify with this, but just feeling very disenfranchised, kind of very um, jaded, you know, feeling bone deep kind of certainty that just Georgia would go Republican again and it would be same old, same old politics. But to see this kind of result from six years of uh, you know, intense grassroots effort is really exciting. Um, Stacey Abrams very famously lost the Georgia governor's race when she ran for that. Um, She was up against a Republican candidate, um, Brian Kemp, who was the secretary of the state of Georgia at the time. So he was simultaneously supervising the election and running the election. And unsurprisingly, perhaps he won. Um, He also had uh, led this huge push for years before that to cancel voter registrations on the allegation that there was a lot of fraud and a lot of people who were incorrectly registered and I think by you know the end of his effort he had like discarded millions of voter registrations um, including I think 800,000 the year leading up to the governor's election alone. Interestingly my sister was one of those um, whose ballot was not uh, accepted during the governor's race um, And uh, particularly, it was interesting that disproportionately the ballots that were canceled were African-American and young people who tend to vote overwhelmingly um, Democrat. So um, yeah, it was an experience that was like personally hit home a lot, you know, feeling very disenfranchised. So, you know, once again, it was a result that kind of felt like a, um, you know, victory after so many issues and a lot of disappointment, so yeah. It's a pretty cool time to be at Georgia Peach, I'm telling you guys. It's been fun. Oh, oh yeah, fun. so
0: Georgia, yeah. <laughs> Georgia, Georgia is a state to watch. Yeah. Okay, so... Nika and I were saying we need to get know, some
1: peach rakia to celebrate.
0: Okay. Oh yeah, uh, so, coming from, so coming from Georgia yeah. in the US, how did you end up as a Fulbright scholar mm. and specifically in Macedonia? Mm, mm, mm.
1: You know this is something I have spoken about repeatedly as I've made these different applications and Um, try to explain to people how a boy from South Georgia found himself in the Balkans. Uh, You know, it's interesting that when I told most people when I first learned I received a Fulbright scholarship to go to North Macedonia, um, Georgia being the heart of the American Bible Belt, most people responded, Macedonia? Like the Bible? And I was like, well, kind of, yes. Just 2,000 years after the fact. um, So it was really interesting. I mean, there really wasn't much cultural awareness of the Balkans or Balkan history beyond what maybe the military communities in Georgia had experienced um, you know, uh, with uh, the Yugoslav war. So um, it was honestly the pivotal moment came in high school. I was homeschooled for various reasons. Education, public education in Georgia doesn't have a lot of investments. The schools aren't good quality. I was homeschooled, so I didn't have many friends. And I met at church a local exchange student from Croatia and she kind of sparked my interest in the former Yugoslavia. She, her parents, her grandparents and her great-grandparents had always lived in the same place in Croatia but they had had six different quote-unquote nationalities and that to me was fascinating. The fact that like borders and identities could change around you while you stayed put and it does kind of mirror the experience of U.S. growth and expansion a bit. And particularly when she talked about intercommunal relations in the former Yugoslavia between different Slavic communities, between Slavic communities and non-Slavic communities, between people who are in a disagreement about whether or not they are Slavs. um, It was really interesting, particularly having grown up in Georgia, which was the site of a huge chapter of the US civil rights movement. right? I had experienced and seen racial strife and racial tension. But ethnic tension was a really new concept to me Fascinating, though, and how it had parallels to what I had seen growing up, you know, between white folks, black folks, um, Spanish-speaking communities, um, and even some indigenous people. So, um, for me, that led to this intense interest in identity and how shaping identity and memory around identity can have huge real-world impacts on people's daily lives, um, as you know, in North Macedonia. So, that was kind of the gateway uh, idea that led to a lifelong love of studying the Balkans um, in Southeast Europe. And, um, you know, I had an internship in North Macedonia at the US Embassy. I had a fantastic time. The colorful revolution was happening. There was an ongoing dialogue with Greece. At that point, you know, that uh, conversation was taking way more precedence over Bulgaria and Macedonia's relationship. Um, it was Greece, Macedonia, Greece, Macedonia. Um, and then a year later, obviously you have the PRESPA agreement while well, I was working for NDI with Macedonia on my portfolio. And so I, you know, got the opportunity to, um, live there and it was a really transformative experience and kind of, I think the Fulbright and the chance to live in Steep, especially which played such an important role in the history of Macedonia as a city and as a community, um, that for me really solidified the trajectory. So, yeah, um, yeah. Plus I think too, on a personal note, people in the Balkans are very, very hospitable and they're very warm and friendly. And that for me, reminded me very much of Southern American culture. So, um, and we all drink tea. uh, So uh, caffeine kind of reigns King in both my home and my new home. So yeah, lots of different uh, appeals uh, for the Balkans and for North Macedonia specifically.
0: Yeah, like from like from the time when you were like in the U.S. Embassy and later mm. was a Fulbright uh, what like what was your experience of seeing such like for us specifically it was very drastic change mm. Uh, mm. you know uh, mm. and how how did you how did you see that as like an outsider,
1: mm, mm. particularly with regard to you know political change and uh, the different kind of evolution in like party leadership and control combined with the changes in international relations? Is that what you're referring to, and how that played out within the country?
0: Yeah, to, like from from your from your perspective, how mm. like how do you feel like just walking down the street is yeah. seeing like paintballs being hurled at mm. institutions? Mm, mm, mm.
1: You know, it's interesting, right? I mean, um, America maybe not as extreme as France, but we have a long history of celebrating protest as a form of civic engagement. You know, and you know even when you know, things like Black Lives Matter result in controversy and people say, well, you can push the agenda, but why do you have to loot, you know, and why do you have to do this or that? Whereas other folks respond, you know, that type of engagement and maybe even destruction is the voice of a people, the language of a people who don't have a voice, right? They just feel so frustrated with how gridlocked the civic process is. They don't have an outlet to actually create change. So for me, it was just really exciting. The embassy had told us that we were not allowed to be anywhere near the protests. So, you know, unfortunately I was not able to talk to protesters myself um, or to engage with them while they were protesting. I didn't actually get to see, you know, the first paintball thrown, uh, which would have been pretty amazing. But it was cool in that I met people after the fact, especially young people, which it was primarily a young person phenomenon, I think. And um, talking about why they were so passionate and why this felt so exciting as they kind of catalyzed uh, this groundswell movement and more people began participating and it really got a lot of international attention. Um, and then you'd walk around afterwards and you'd see the messages and you'd see the paint. And for me, it was also really cool at how it so brilliantly contrasted with, you know, not only the kind of very um, interesting development of Skopje uh, 2014, Um and uh, the kind of classical European architecture they're emulating, but also like the brutalism of the Yugoslav heritage uh, before that, right? Um, You know, you had some parts of the city that can be a bit monotone, then like all this brilliant paint and splattering and like just I don't know, for me, it was exciting to see young people that cared enough that they were willing to make their mark on the city like that. And that I thought was really exciting. Um, You know, I think especially it helped that it came from a city in Savannah where the civil rights movement was really important. Um, And uh, it it had a strong parallel for me. um, uh, These are young people who really are frustrated, right? Because if young people didn't care, they would just move up and they would leave, you know? Um, you know, there's a lot of smart people in Macedonia, especially young people, and they have the skills that can take them anywhere in the world, but they cared enough to do something, right? Um, So, you know, in some cases you could argue that the former ruling uh, party just wanted to facilitate people to leave the country. They didn't really care about brain drain as long as the people stirring up trouble were leaving. Um, So the fact that people were willing to stay and engage, I thought was really exciting. Um, And it led to a lot of really cool conversations about, you know, where is Macedonia going? What are we doing, you know, as a community? Um, How can we realize prosperity and transparent government and like, you know, a working, functioning democracy? Um, So, yeah, it was exciting. I was really happy to be there at that time. Um, So, yeah.
0: yeah. So yeah, I mean you, you were definitely here during like a most interesting of times for, mm. for the country, just mm. transformation. Mm. But like yep. but like co- co- coming back coming back to the contemporary, yep. uh how do you you know how, how do you how do you feel about the recent veto that Bulgaria put put upon Macedonia in terms of like the EU integration, but also uh, just, just just like the demands of uh, that they that they voiced on changing the on changing the using the using some formulation of the language and mm, I forget mm, the other ones.
1: Yeah. Mm, mm. Um very, very disappointed, you know. I think that Maced- North Macedonia has taken so many important and in some ways really painful steps, you know which some of which can really be debated how necessary was this or that but they did it right because i think north macedonia as a community was really committed to being a part of europe you know and to rejoining the continent politically economically socially and claiming their place you know as part of this like prosperous european future and they've made a lot of changes within the country i think to try to really demonstrate that we're serious about this, we're serious about becoming an EU member, we're serious about adopting these reforms and transforming the way we do business and politics here in this country. Um, At least many people were. And I think European history shows that the kind of demands Bulgaria is making on North Macedonia is really, really dangerous, you know? Um, I mean, you literally only have to look, you know, back 20 years ago to see the breakup of Yugoslavia echoing the exact same parallels, right? And we all know the kind of violence that that resulted in, particularly for Bosnia, right? These disagreements over who and what are we as a people and who has the right to decide that and who has the right to then rewrite memory of who we are, you know, moving forward. The kind of unilateral approach that the folks in power in Yugoslavia took, particularly in Belgrade, did result in, it was a complex situation, but that was, I think, for me, one major factor in like why you saw so much violence break out. Um, and furthermore, as a historian, it's so frustrating because it's such a clear and obvious misuse of the discipline of history, right? Um, and, you know, I think that the letter released by the group of Balkan historians, there's been two, but the more recent one you know, really nailed this on the head, and um, I actually have it pulled up if I can find it. But um, you know, what they basically said was, you know, listen, all identities are constructions, and all identities are complex, and they have to be viewed through several different lenses. And to insist that only one quote truth and one viewpoint be held up as official is not only historically inaccurate and ahistorical, but it does have really dangerous connotations, particularly in the Balkans where intercommunal communal relationships can be really fragile, right? And it's important for people to be respected and to feel like that what they bring to the table is being acknowledged. So, um, you know, I was actually really, really happy with the, um, letter that was released. Actually, I have it right here. Um, so um, here we go. However, modern approaches in human and social science conceptualize all nations as constructed and even literally, quote unquote, artificial and national histories as spiritual constructs as one of many ways one can comprehend the past. It is also worrying that through negotiations, the two countries attempt to seek a consensus on one and only one historical truth modern historiography has long accepted the existence of different interpretations as a result of different perspectives. We live in pluralistic societies and work in an academic environment that accepts pluralism of interpretations, including interpretations of the past, as something normal. So, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that Macedonia and Bulgaria have a long shared history, like no one's not trying to argue that, Um, but I think for Bulgaria to attempt to rewrite history and put forth this only one narrative, particularly a narrative that says you must essentially abolish your independent identity and abolish your distinctiveness because that is, quote unquote, a lie. Um, I think that's really egregious and wrong, um, you know, and uh, it is very, very frustrating. I remember when I was in Skopje the first time and I made my first trip to Sofia, Um, I told people, you know, I'm living in Macedonia. I was just Macedonia at the time. And, um, you know, I'm working there. And uh, literally the first thing I was told was, oh, you mean Western Bulgaria. And it was kind of like an eye roll moment of, okay, you know, like that's whatever. But um, it's it's interesting. For me, the main takeaway for observers should be that history matters and how you teach history matters, because these are the type of like geopolitical situations with real ramifications, particularly for the young people Macedonia, that arise when you allow state actors to kind of write a state agenda into the history textbooks instead of helping students think critically and in a complex way about history. So it's my very long-winded reaction. Um, But yeah, no, honestly, I would seek to go back to the drawing table, just the motivations that are being brought in with this whole, the fact, the very fact that there's a commission to make a final decision on who Gotei Delchev is, like, that's ahistorical, you know what I mean? Like, that's, there's, there's no way to make a final decision, you know, like, and this is it, right? Like, there's no way to do that. He himself had a very complex identity. He lived at a time in which identities, national identities as we know them today, didn't quite exist, right? They were kind of being formed at that point. And it's a huge issue in history to backwards project current ideas and understandings of the world onto a previous generation or a previous period, because that leads to a complete misinterpretation, so.
2: How do you see this this situation potentially unraveling? Like what Mm. are some possible scenarios for Mm. generally this question?
0: Mm,
1: mm, mm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think in general, this was the big issue with some that some folks on the EU side had, as they were seeking to welcome in different um, Balkan communities into the EU, particularly with an idea of who was currently in power, as they were doing that, because this issue was a little bit anticipated, you know, that the fact that as different states were incorporated and accepted these long-standing kind of bad blood with a member that wasn't accepted yet would then inform the way that the state who got in first would try to warp the process for the incoming you know members right you know that was the whole issue with like you know Croatia, Bosnia and Serbia right that's what everybody was anticipating you know depending on who gets in first they're going to make it harder for the other ones or impose these like you know crazy conditions and you know things that really don't have anything to do with like economic indexes or, like, transparency of, you know, civic processes, right? I mean, abolishing your identity should not be a, like, you know, condition of EU membership, right? That's nuts. So um, I think it sets a really bad precedent, right? Because you have an, you know, ongoing issue, frankly, still with Kosovo, right? And is this going to give Serbia license if they happen to get in first of making some sort of similar demand on Kosovo, right? I mean, you look at both like, you know, Bosnia, right? Are both Croatia and Serbia, then going to have license to make some sort of similar demand on Bosnia, you know? Um, It's just, or like, you know, what about like Kosovo and Albania? Like once again, very long shared history, right? Peoples that have a long shared identity uh, with nuances and complexes in each community. What's going to happen there? So I think it, it, from the EU perspective, it's such a really bad, precedent for the future of the EU accession process if the EU does not take a strong leadership stance and pushing back against Bulgaria and saying this is not this is not good. This is this is not acceptable. You can't bully a you know prospective applicant like this. Um, uh, within North Macedonia, I, I, I think that like it, it's for me, I care most about young people in Macedonia. And I feel like this is discouraging. You know, young people want to stay in their home and they want to use their skills to contribute to making Macedonia prosperous, right? Like, yes, there are great opportunities all over the world, all over the continent, but I don't think that we should be requiring young people to uproot themselves and place themselves in a place where, you know, they're in a completely foreign environment just to realize their talents. You know what I mean? Macedonia has so much process, um, promise and the country itself has a Potential to be a very wealthy country, you know, it sits at the nexus of transportation between, you know, Anatolia and the Middle East with Europe, you know, it has its rich in mineral resources. It's obviously um, An agricultural hub, you know, and it Could be a country that is very successful economically with high, highly educated people. Um, So for me, I see this as like yet another way in which young people can be discouraged um, in North Macedonia and their futures, right? Of being able to, you know, realize great careers. Um, It just gets more difficult to see that happening sooner. You know, Um, I feel like unfortunately this could facilitate the brain drain situation. Um, That's been an ongoing issue for North
2: Macedonia. So, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the European Union and mm. I mean its role is really important in the dispute yeah. because Bulgaria is a member yeah. and yeah. what do you think, what will um, the European Union uh, answer be to this situation? Because if it's not really if the answer is not really good probably the faith in the European Union will crumble in North Macedonia. Mm. So mm. maybe your mm. thoughts about that?
1: Mm. 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 No, I think 100%. I think that I hope that leaders like Germany push back against Bulgaria and say, this is not acceptable, we are not going to tolerate this. And we also know how this behavior can play out. And so often in European history, not even just in Balkan history, but in European history, these type of demands and this type of you know, intellectual and memory irredenta have violent consequences. So from a security standpoint, this is not tolerable. Um, I think that the EU also needs to recognize that Bulgaria has a variety of motivations to doing this, not in the least an ongoing corruption crisis, uh, which saw tons of people out in the streets you know, as late as September, and that this is a really easy way to dominate the narrative and divert it into a conversation that distracts from what's happening within Bulgaria. And ultimately, I think there needs to be a reform it, within the EU process of how you deal with these members that misbehave, right? I mean, the EU right now is being held captive by uh, Hungary and Poland, who are like, "No, we don't want rule of law tied to whether or not we get, you know, trillions of euros." Um, While well, in the meantime, they've made some really anti-democratic decisions and moods and have engaged in a lot of backsliding right i think that the eu needs a way to effectively punish bad behavior for a long time it, they put it all onto the accession process and the ridiculously quote unquote post accession process right with different ways of like trying to make sure that like you know these applicant countries weren't just making changes on paper only but were actually making like real institutional and operational change Um, because then you continue to have different crises, um, with some, uh, countries that have been, um, admitted both early on and, uh, later, uh, engaging in anti-democratic or corrupt, uh, behavior. I think that like the EU, frankly, needs to have a really honest conversation about how they censor and rein in misbehaving members. Um, because I think this, as well as the situation in Poland and Hungary and other places, Um, As a really clear example of the fact that they don't have the kind of processes they need to keep the EU functioning in times of crisis like this, you know, so
2: Yeah, I think it's a serious problem uh, in regards Mm -hmm. to voting to uh, accept a country in the European Union because yeah, uh, if I'm not mistaken, every country uh, needs to vote. Uh, to get a country in, so it needs to be yep. uh, unanimous. So, yep. like, countries like Bulgaria and Greece has a, has a lot Vito of power, power. to yep. veto somebody, even for a stupid problems like this one, which are right. Right. relevant right. in the 21st century.
1: Right, right, right. No, it's 100% ridiculous to say, we don't like what you call your dialect, and now we don't want you to share in a common economic block and political block, you know? like but you know it's just it's interesting um and i, I agree right um for me it, it illustrates the point why we need to continue to study nationalism right i mean i think for the longest time we were having this conversation of oh we live in a post-nationalist age you know the eu is an example of how we're all just like leaving behind our national identities and being joining into this glorious age of aquarius like where we're together bound by values you know and it's like no like nationalism is still a really important force in the world and it continues to evolve particularly with the role of the internet which facilitates the evolution of these conversations faster than ever, you know, um, while also perpetuating even more strongly kind of these old ideas of natural, uh, nationalism. So, um, no, I totally agree. You know, and I think that like, once again, that that's true with the accession process, I think the EU needs to take a really honest look at how that works because, you know, you now have states being able to weaponize it and live out grudges, uh, through that process which is completely not what it was designed to do um so no you're totally right and i um i I think that like the the issue though is more fundamental right the issue is that they have admitted some states who aren't quite reached a level of kind of uh civic kind of operation that would kind of circumvent that behavior within the country, right? You have like a, a state that's kind of captured by these national interests and seeking to kind of distract from corruption issues. It's like the issues are more fundamental for me. Mm-hmm. Um they there's a deeper problem here that's manifesting right now currently as this kind of ridiculous, you know, behavior of yeah, we don't like your dialect. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean it's kind of obvious that Bulgaria yeah. and Romania didn't yep quite yep. qualified to get in the European Union, but they right, did right. qualify in a geopolitical sense. So,
1: exactly, you know, the EU was yeah. so quick to want a cordon against Russia, you know what I mean? Yes. That yeah. they were really willing to overlook the fact that, you know, some of these countries hadn't actually done the work, right? They had done all the work on paper. And that's, that's how you, if you, look at, if you look at the evolution of the accession process, it got more and more and more and more complex. Which people debate is that really effective, you know? So, yeah, no, you're totally right.
0: I think I think like just going back to our just like an analysis of nationalism. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the in the Balkans we've never really come to a conclusion on what I call sort of that clean kind of historical narrative that like the mm, US has. Mm, you know, mm, you, have, mm. you have the colonial America, you have yeah. the Declaration of Independence, you have the Constitution, then you ha- and then everything afterwards. Mm, mm. Without, without really looking into the more, you know, the, uh, the, the Native American question or the, mm, or, yeah. or the question of racism in the Constitution yep. and other ways. Yep. Uh, so, like, and here, and here, because, like, in the U.S., like, you you never really had a neighbor that, like, uh, that, like, always posed these questions. But here in the Balkans, each of our mm. each of, if, where we're all basically neighbors, we all have grudges against each other because of the lack of historical narrative. If you can comment on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, right? I think that nationalism in the Balkans has always been a zero-sum game, right? Like, one other country realizing success came at the expense of another national community, you know, particularly because as a result of, well, many things. One, the Balkans have always been very, very, very diverse, right, Uh, very diverse. And it's always been a complex demographic environment. made especially so because with 600 years of Ottoman rule, you know, people didn't really have national identities. You know, there was no, like, I belong to this nation or that nation. People had religious identities. You know, people said, I, be- I worship Jesus, or I follow the laws of Moses, or I follow the prophecies of Muhammad, you know? Um, and that was kind of like the three main categories. Within that, especially towards the 19th century, you had some complexity of, well, I go to a Slavic-speaking church, or I go to a Greek-speaking church, you know? Or I go to you know uh, this tradition of Islam or that tradition of Islam, but for the most part, you had mostly people identifying with the religious identity, and then, with all of the chaos of the breakup of the Ottoman Empire and you know people not having clear boundaries for where your people lived, it made these state and nation building projects, which happened at the same time really competitive and violent, right. Um, because in order to build a state, you had to first establish a nation, Um, but in order to uh, conduct in some of the activities of building a nation, right? Like standardizing the language, rewriting the curriculum, recreating people's memory, you know, doing a census, um, establishing, you know, all sorts of different factors of identity, you need the power of a state. And so that led to kind of this like, uh, you know, territory and population rush to kind of acquire and claim as much as you could as quickly as possible, um, particularly in the kind of winner-takes-all environment that was the post-Ottoman Balkan context. Um, I think with the states, like the states, you know, was always very, very powerful. In some ways, you could say the U.S.-Mexican relationship kind of can mirror what was happening with some of the breakup of the Balkan League and the difficulties experienced then because the US did just like snap up, like large swaths of Mexican territory and the borders kind of changed around people. Um, however, we, unlike um, the Balkan context, we didn't share a history with the folks whose territory we claimed. We engaged in the process of either rounding them up and putting them on reservations or we just kicked them out of the country altogether. Um, a lot of people don't know that after we acquire territory that, you know, Texas and the Southwest, we, I mean, as late as like in the 1900s, like, people who were of Mexican descent were just being rounded up, put on trains and shipped to Mexico who they had never lived there before, you know, like the boundaries changed around them. So it's really interesting. Um, and I think that the other fundamental difference is that these state building projects you know, looked to having a national community to legitimize themselves, right? We deserve to be a state because we are a nation and nations have the right to self-determination. So they had to engage in these projects of quickly saying, no, we exist and we have a history and all this stuff. Um, whereas in the states, we have always kind of celebrated the fact that we, ha- we are a constructed identity, right? We have celebrated the fact that we are, quote, artificial constructed identity based on values. And while it certainly wasn't extended to many people at first, right? I mean, it really was just wealthy white men. The, 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 it was There's an ability there, there's a plasticity there to evolve and incorporate more peoples and actually kind of live out that vision of being a nation of values, not a nation of a shared bloodline or a shared history or a shared language or religion necessarily. However, I think the Trump presidency has indicated that we still struggle with that, right? We still struggle with what is the idea of an American nation, right? Because we like to think of ourselves as like this, you know, community of principles that anybody can adopt and anybody can join, anybody can be a part of. But I think when you look at the ongoing struggle with like Black Lives Matter and like missing and uh, murdered indigenous women and you know uh, the ongoing issue with like trans folks and queer folks to feel like they can participate fully and be recognized as members of society with full rights. It's, it, there is a parallel there. Um, so but I think that the ways in which the American project kind of has a bit more flexibility is because on paper, at least, it's supposed to be a nation of values and principles and ideas, not necessarily a nation of like shared blood, you know, um, or shared ancestors um, or cultural heritage, per se. Um, so I think that that can kind of be the main difference is um, you know, we're still trying to, it, there's just the, the di- evolution of civil society and a civic nation and um, the Balkans is just in a different place in the States.
2: Yeah, you, you did talk about shared values, and that's really important, but Mm. Uh, I think in the Balkans, we do have a shared value. And that value is nationalism. I think yeah. every country is deeply embedded in nationalism. And I think mm. it's mm. one of the greatest evils on the Earth, especially in the. Mm. Balkans. It's really mm. Evident. Mm. Mm. So mm. I personally don't see an end in sight in for nationalism in the Balkans. So mm. what do you think? Do you think nationalism is at an end in the Balkans? And how can it end?
1: For me, it all comes back to history education, right? And I'm a historian, so I'm obviously very biased, right? Like, my discipline is the most important, but, you know, I think that, like, if you can teach children, because you hit the nail on the head, right? The reason why nationalism has continued to present these challenges in this way is because the way in which, you know, young people are taught to remember themselves and where they come from in North Macedonia, right? And I think that, We have the same issue in the States where the people who have an agenda are the ones who are writing the history textbooks. And that can lead, that's a huge formative part of people's identities, right? Who they are taught, who they are. Um, And for me, I think that there just needs to be a continued push to educate young people and the next generation coming up to appreciate nuance and complexity in identity and in history. You know, if young people were able to get a comprehensive historical education about the emergence of Macedonia and about the emergence of the different Balkan states and about the state and nation building projects, you know, um, at, the turn, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, I think that you would have more of an appreciation for, you know, yes, I do belong to a national community, but I also have an awareness of how that came to be about and how that was the result of the concerted efforts of, the, of various actors with this specific vision and i have the ability to mod- like change that vision to where what's more important in society building for me is not just incorporating people who belong to my quote nation but extending my idea of civil society and who gets to participate to people who believe in honest government and in transparency and in you know, the political agency of every human who lives here, regardless of what they look like, what their name is, or where they worship, you know. Um, And that, I think, can be really facilitated by helping to emphasize a history of North Macedonia and the Balkans in general, in which It's very, very diverse. And people of many different languages and many different beliefs are living right next to each other. And for centuries, they're pretty okay. you know? Um, They get along. They're maybe not like hunky-dory best friends, but they do get along, right? Um, And the kind of intercommunal violence that's kind of characterized the, the turn of the century and different ethnic relations since then, that's not necessarily the norm. And it doesn't have to be our future, right? Um, I think that really North Macedonia could go super far by emphasizing how diverse it was for many, many hundreds of years and how that was not a problem. That could be a huge source of strength. Um, So yeah, Um, it's only been recently where you have the construction of like kind of these mono-ethnic uh, kind of areas uh, on the landscape of the Balkans, including North Macedonia. I mean, even in Shtip, right? I mean, Shtip, there's a, like a large Roma community. Shtip is very famously um, a center where the Vlach community lived for many, many hundreds of years. Most people in Shtip have some Vlach ancestry. Obviously, you know large macedonian community um there are like you know uh macedonian muslims who live uh, just nearby you know in neighboring villages you know steep itself if you look past the surface is actually a very diverse place and people for day to day they do get along you know i remember going to the farmer's market and everybody was kind of interacting and buying and selling things to each other and it was fine i think that that model of a macedonian society is the one that the nation as a whole should seek to emulate and celebrate
0: yeah, I think I think like I have I found I find a little bit of fault because uh like you know we've coexisted for like many generations and like many centuries uh, yep. up until today and yet yep. and yet we and yet we cannot figure out the process of reconciliation right. of like of like certain periods of time where there has been a lot of violence
1: right right and you mentioned too Nico that your history curriculum very much was so different depending on which you know, ethnic community you belong to in North Macedonia. And the kids who are going to the schools of this one ethnic community were learning something completely different from the kids who are going to school in another ethnic community. And that is not sustainable, you know? Like that 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 leads to this contention and people thinking, oh, I can't compromise or budge an inch because they're gonna take advantage of me and then like we're gonna lose all of our rights. You know what I mean? Um for me that that is where a huge issue is right i think that the history curriculum should celebrate the fact that macedonia has always been pluralistic and that is where the country needs to you know accept and move forward you know i think regardless of what national community you belong to in macedonia whether you're albanian whether you're macedonian whether you're macedonian orthodox or macedonian muslim whether you're albanian muslim or albanian christian whether you're roma of any faith you know whether you're serb whether you're turk um, whether you're a Bulgarian living in Macedonia, whether you're, you know, someone of Vlach descent living in Macedonia, like you have a shared history with these people who live in these different communities and you have a shared future with them and everybody benefits if we focus on cooperation. Um, but people... Think there's just so much anxiety about the other demographics of the other national communities they're reproducing more than us or they're trying to push their language rights or they won't let me use my language in my community you know like it it, it leads to just uh, on a gridlock that seems very inescapable i think for me it starts with education it always starts with what do teach children about what kind of society we are for me that is the solution it's going to take some time though you know
0: great um uh, i think i think like with this uh, we can close out the interview again mm-hmm. kevin thank you so thank you so much for uh for being here and for speaking with us yeah
1: uh yep.
0: and it was great to have you on the podcast and i hope those we'll, i hope we'll get to see you on the podcast soon and of course um if, if you're ever around macedonia we can do a live episode
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I feel like I'm talking to like the future leaders of Macedonia. And so when you guys are in parliament one day being sworn in, remember that your boy Kevin called it first. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just, this is exciting. And I feel very, one, thankful that I was able to speak to everyone today. And for me, it's so encouraging to see young people who are, you know, serious about using their intelligence and their skills to move these conversations forward. Um, And I think podcasts like this, once again, play a huge role in being able to address this issue because you know, the conversation, the dialogue has to change first. So um, yeah, this is fantastic. And um, I wish all three of you guys the best. I hope you guys stay safe during this pandemic and uh, that you can finish out this term without too much anxiety and drama. Um, I don't know what kind of exams you guys have coming up, but hopefully the holidays are right around the corner so you guys can hang on. But um, yeah, thank you so much. This is really, really fun.
0: Thank you so much. And to everyone listening, new episodes come out uh, in two weeks.
1: Cheers, guys.